Ted Wheeler, mayor of Portland, Oregon, speaks about his attempts to care for the vulnerable as he describes his efforts to advocate for consumers in eliminating hidden fees uh, in a card provided to the vulnerable by the state. And calling it out for what it was, which is making a profit off the backs of poor people. Among the most vulnerable are the homeless of Portland, Oregon. Ted responds to criticism that Portland's status as a sanctuary city is encouraging undocumented individuals from out of state to come to Portland to take advantage of Portland's generous social services. Every mayor hears that because of the services they're providing to try and end homelessness, they're in fact attracting people from all over. Uh, I can tell you this factually, that is not the case in Portland. But on the whole, the vast majority of people, to say 80 to 85 percent of the people on our streets, are people who have been here for at least five years. Ted elaborates upon his vision for Portland as an inclusive community. I want people to understand and believe that I built a community, and that means more justice, more equity, more inclusive economic prosperity opportunities, and having everybody feel that this city is working for them. Reflecting upon his motivations to enter public service, Ted says that it was a calling, and it still is a calling. Stay tuned for more from Ted Wheeler, Mayor of Portland, Oregon. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We're here today with Ted Wheeler, a Democratic mayor of Portland, Oregon, and the former Oregon State Treasurer. Ted is also the former chair of the Multnomah County Board of Commissioners. Ted, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing just fantastically well. Thanks, Jordan, for having me today. Great. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Well, uh, that's a a great question. I, I believe every day I have Uh, the opportunity to advance the public interest. And uh, for me, that includes a lot of things. I could look back on my policies here in the state of Oregon. Um, I'll just highlight a couple that we've done. I helped champion the first-of-its-kind state-sponsored retirement savings plan. It's the first one that's gone live in the United States, and I think it provides a great model for easy and affordable retirement savings. Here in the state of Oregon, uh, over many years, I've worked very, very hard to champion issues around social justice, around human rights, around access to health care, around uh, equity issues. And as mayor, the biggest impact I think we're having is around homelessness and addressing housing affordability issues, but also not straying from my bread and butter issues around uh, addressing climate change making sure that we're making investments in infrastructure and ensuring that we have a responsible and engaged public safety system here. Uh, Because as mayor of Portland, I also happen to be the police commissioner. 
So you mentioned that homelessness is one of the greatest challenges facing Portland. And, of course, you got your start in politics when you served as an overnight host at the Goose Hollow Shelter. Can you speak to me about how that experience uh, opened your eyes to the uh, experiences of the vulnerable uh, in your own community and how that led you down the path to uh, through a public service that you've been treading these past few years? Yeah, and thank you for asking me that because that, that was almost 20 years ago, Jordan. I was an overnight volunteer shelter host at a local homeless shelter that was set up for families. So these are shelters that have families with children under the age of 12. And, you know, for them it was already a crisis two decades ago. And I couldn't believe that in a city as wealthy and prosperous as Portland, we had so many families with kids sleeping on our streets and sleeping in shelters. And uh, I felt that that just personally I had to step up and and engage uh, myself and my resources and my time and energy to helping address the issue. And as I got in there, I I really honestly had no interest in politics whatsoever at that point. But when I saw the relationship between that shelter and its operators and our local county government, which provided at the time the housing and homelessness safety net, I was really upset about it because it was a very, very dysfunctional relationship. And so I I spent about three or four months trying to find people who had run for the Board of County Commissioners to maybe do something about it, and nobody else wanted to be in politics either. Um, So finally, uh, my then uh, girlfriend, now wife, said, you just need to to put up or shut up. And uh, so she called my bluff, and I I got into the race for Multnomah County Chair, and lo and behold, I won. So here here I am years and years later uh, doing the best I can to help address what, what is obviously a humanitarian crisis of massive proportions. You know, we're, we're taking responsibility for our issues here in Portland, but uh, it would be naive for me to think that this isn't an issue impacting every other metropolitan area in our country, because it is. Now, Ted, um, you have gone over these past 20 years from just hosting one family to providing $28 million worth of homeless services, rental protection. You've created 40 rental units for homeless families, 300 affordable housing units, um, and simultaneously, uh, you've been supportive of what has been referred to as a sanctuary city, which simply means that uh, the municipality won't be enforcing federal laws. My question is, do you believe that your um, the interest in being a so-called sanctuary city has attracted a greater uh, population that may have been homeless um, and, and may have been taking advantage of your programs? Uh, and to what extent is your social – what role is, is your support of social safety net having on the community in the Portland area? Well, Jordan, as you know, I recently got together with mayors from all over the country to discuss these two issues, both the housing and homelessness issue as well as the immigration issue and sanctuary city status. And uh, first of all, let me be crystal clear. I don't see any linkage between the two whatsoever. Our status as a sanctuary city is uh, now nearly 30 years old. Uh, We have long been a sanctuary city in the sense that we don't use local law enforcement to enforce federal policies. 
And uh, so we, you know, th this is not a new policy, so we can't ascribe the uh, large increase in people who are homeless, particularly families with children, to that particular policy. That policy has been around a long, long time. Uh, with regard to the question of whether uh, our benevolence and our focus on addressing services that help people get off and stay off the street is actually attracting people, you know, this is almost a running joke amongst mayors. Every mayor hears in their city that they have the worst homeless situation in America, and every mayor hears that because of the services they're providing to try and end homelessness, they're in fact attracting people from all over. Uh, I can tell you this factually. That is not the case in Portland. There are certainly people who move from around the region to the city. For example, we are the only county that's providing any family shelter services at all. Uh, so if you're located anywhere else in our large state and you need access to services, you may find yourself coming to Portland. But on the whole, the vast majority of people, to say 80 to 85% of the people on our streets, are people who have been here for at least five years. So they truly are uh, people who are either economically displaced or they're people who are struggling with mental health or addiction issues or they're survivors of domestic violence or they're youth with uh, their own issues that, that need adult leadership and support to help them address. Um, it, it's the wrong argument to have and, and frankly it, it galls me that rather than working with us to end the housing and the homelessness crisis, there are people who are saying we're being too generous and therefore worsening the problem. That is utterly a ridiculous argument to make, and it just isn't based in fact. So pivoting off of this conversation about the social safety net, many Oregonians may be wondering, well, how do we continue to pay for all these generous policies? We're investing in infrastructure. We're reducing the debt. Uh, and I want to touch upon your financial background in a moment. Sure. How, but how do you, many many individuals will be asking, you know, Ted, all this sounds great. We're expanding social services on a compassion for all these individuals. But we're also able to reduce debt. How can we afford all these programs? So would you speak for a moment about um, how you've been able to grow the retirement savings plans, make it among the best, uh, most well-invested uh, pension plans in the country, uh, and and uh, how your background in financial services has, uh, how you've utilized that to both reduce debt and uh, fund uh, social safety net programs in Oregon. Yeah, good, good questions, but let, let, me, let me get at what wasn't stated first, which is we have to live within our means. And the fact of the matter is the city of Portland, like every other major city, at least on the West Coast, we do not have the means alone to be able to solve the homelessness crisis. We need help from the federal government. And as just one example of that, uh, you know, HUD, has act, Housing and Urban Development, has actually reduced its support for workforce and lower income housing by 85% since the 1980s. So they've been calling on states and cities to pick up the slack. Even recently, we've had debates in Congress about cutting back on Medicaid dollars those are the dollars used by social service providers to get people the help they need to get off and stay off the streets. So uh, I want to be clear, while we're stepping up and we're doing our part at the local level, Congress cannot turn its back on American cities. 
I would argue that if we're serious about addressing the homelessness crisis and the mental health issues and the addiction issues, we need a Marshall-esque like plan from the federal government to support and work alongside the work that states and local governments are doing. Now with regard to the financial tools, uh, for me, I'm very proud of the fact that for six years I was our state's treasurer. We had a very good investment run. We were number one in the nation in terms of our investment returns over all six of the years that I served as state treasurer. We always invested for the long run. We were always judicious about debt. Uh, the state of Oregon, and certainly when I was at Multnomah County and now uh, here at the city of Portland, we are very, very conscientious about not extending debt beyond what we can reasonably afford and what we can do to maintain that AAA bond rating that we, we guard so jealously because that keeps the cost of investing in infrastructure down. But we're also being really innovative about financial tools that we use. Uh, we have what are called urban renewal areas in our city, and, and lots of cities have the same tool all across the country. And those urban renewal areas capture any new taxes created by development in those areas, and they reinvest those taxes in the urban renewal areas. But once those urban renewal areas are built out and they're developed and they're self-supporting, the taxes go back to the city. And rather than just having it go into the general fund and uh, being used for whatever the issue du jour is, I have set up a strategy called Build Portland where we invest $600 million in street maintenance over the next 20 years. In other words, we're capturing and disciplining the way that those funds come back to the city council and predetermining that they will go towards road infrastructure and other civic infrastructure. So we will have a reliable source of funding for something that we're not getting much help from the federal government on right now. So, uh, Ted, many politicians around the country perhaps are quite quietly lamenting how there is uh, politically not as much of a reward for long-term investment as for short-term investments, right? Because if you run for election uh, every few years, and you're making decisions that may require a large fixed upfront investment that might pay off in the long run, you might find that other politicians 10, 20 years down the road may be reaping the rewards of your decisions, but you may not be reaping those rewards at the ballot box at the next election. How do you politically find it feasible to invest in the long run, first when you were treasurer for the state of Oregon and now as mayor investing in infrastructure projects? Well, the, the good news is that it's not the elected officials who are actually making the investments. You know, when I was at the state treasury, I had a team of 100 really, really good people working with me, and they were long-termers. They were long-term state bureaucrats, and I use that word in, in the positive sense. Uh, they were expert investors, and they understand that if they're going to be around for the 5 to 10 to 15 to 20-year period, as many of them are, they want to see sustained long-term investments. And there are some checks and balances to making stupid short-term decisions and trying to game the system. The bond rating agencies, for example, they see right through short-term economic strategies that leave the municipal or state jurisdiction strapped in out years, and they'll reflect that in their bond ratings. Because remember, when you go to to Moody's or Standard & Poor's or Fitch or one of those agencies, 
the only people they care about are the bondholders. And if you're buying a 20- or a 30-year bond, you want to know that the jurisdiction is in a financial condition that they can actually service those bonds as promised. And that's what the rating agencies do. But I'll tell you truthfully, I've seen most fiscal officers at the state and local level take their long-term fiduciary responsibility very, very seriously. I've certainly seen some boneheaded policy moves over the years. But for the most part, when it comes to doing things like investing our pension assets, diligently monitoring the issuance of debt, I've seen really good performance. And that's been backed up both by long-term investment returns as well as bond ratings from the independent agencies. Now, you haven't only been using your financial acumen to benefit the state on an aggregate level. You've also worked as a consumer advocate, joining the Attorney General in a class action lawsuit that eliminated hidden fees and state debt cards. The lawsuit was actually about pension funds. Can you speak about some of your consumer advocacy work that you've done on behalf of Oregonians? Yeah, sure. The very first one I got right as I walked in the door as state treasurer back in 2010 was probably the most interesting one. For people in Oregon who are on food support or housing support or other social service needs, we had a debit card program called ReliaCard. And it was a really good program, but as we dug into it deeper, we realized that the poorest people in our state, the people who are eligible for these cards, were actually paying really high fees. And it just seemed wrong to me that we should be involved in any partnership where people are making a significant profit off the most poor people in our state. And so this was just an example of personal will, bringing the right people together in the room and calling it out for what it was, which was making a profit off the backs of poor people. And so we were able to renegotiate that ReliaCard so that the fees charged were actually knocked all the way back to zero, which was, in my opinion, the right rate. Now, that doesn't mean these companies were working for free or that they weren't making a profit. They had many other lines of business with us as well. And we just wanted to make sure that if they were going to be our primary bankers in other lines of business where they were making really good profit margins, we didn't want them to also be charging our poorest residents for those services to them. And so that's just one example. In other cases, we worked with other institutional shareholders to change policies and boards of directors. After the BP disaster, the oil spill in the Gulf Corps, we worked with other institutional investors around the world and ultimately came up with a strategy whereby deep water oil well drillers would have to have financial and environmental mitigation strategies put into place. They didn't have that at the time of the BP disaster. And in other cases, still we're demanding that particularly Fortune 500 companies demonstrate more diversity, more women and people of color on their boards of directors. And we even created a mechanism to make it easier for them to do that by providing a database of highly qualified women and people of color who they could choose from to add to their boards of directors. And we weren't doing that just because it was the right thing to do from an equity perspective. 
we were doing it because it turns out the companies that have diverse boards of directors actually get better long-term rates of return. So we were making an economic argument and a fiduciary argument that uh, very few boards of directors would be able to look at us and say no. Wow. Well, uh, simply making a diversity argument to increase ROI is uh, an argument that seems uh, – I've never heard anyone else talk about it, so it's quite novel. Uh, on the topic well, of Jordan, novel- Jordan if, if, I, if I could on that issue, if you want to change Wall Street, you've really got to talk their language. And uh, as you know, for, for them, the bottom line matters. For them, you know, rate of uh, return on investment matters. Internal rates of return matter for them. And for just about any social cause that one can think of, there is a financial implication. And oftentimes what people ignore, what progressives ignore, is by implementing progressive policies, it's often additive to the bottom line of these companies. So rather than uh, trying to beat them up to get them to do the right thing when, frankly, they just care about rate of return, instead completely change the argument, flip the lens over and start talking about how doing the right thing also is good for the bottom line because then they have to listen to you. Sounds like progressive is profitable. It is. So you mentioned earlier uh, that that Oregon needs uh, or America needs a Marshall Plan uh, which, uh, as many of our listeners will know, was the United States plan to rebuild Europe after World War II. Now, you have introduced the Oregon Investment Act to help small businesses. You've uh, articulated a desire to have the, to create 25,000 jobs that each pay $25 an hour by the year 2025. Could you speak about what you're doing with these and other initiatives to promote economic development and support small businesses within Portland? Sure. The Oregon Investment Act was passed uh, a number of years ago. I think it was about 2012 or 2013 that we got that through the Oregon legislature on a bipartisan basis. And it basically took all of our economic development strategies and all of our economic development support and investment pools and brought them under one roof with a set of policies that put a focus on equity. In other words, helping to provide capital and technical assistance and support, particularly to minority and women-owned companies in our state, but it's broadly available to everybody. We wanted to make sure that there was a clear equity lens uh, that was included there to make sure uh, that they were engaged. And similarly, the 25 by 25 Prosperity Plan is an effort to create 25,000 new jobs in Portland by the year 2025 that pay $25 an hour or more. And again, there's a real focus to creating pathways to education and job training for women and people of color who are disproportionately subjected to higher rates of unemployment and lower wages. If we could get more women and people of color into those higher skill, higher wage categories, a lot of our economic prosperity issues would evaporate. And so we're working very intentionally, not only with our Economic Development Bureau, but also our workforce uh, board, as well as uh, our community colleges and university systems and the private sector and others to help us create those pathways to education and job training. 
You are no stranger to taking on gargantuan tasks. You have um, climbed Mount Everest and snowshoed to the North Pole. And uh, and so uh, I'd like to ask you um, right now about uh, why you call yourself a transitional mayor and how you've been able to govern in the, your first year in office from one crisis to the next, uh, from snowstorms <laughs> to debt crisis. Why are you the transitional mayor? Why are you attracted to these gargantuan tasks? And how have you been able to overcome these crises? Well, very good. Well, first, first of all, with re regard to Mount Everest, and, and I'm fortunate to call myself a veteran of three trips to Mount Everest, in, including one successful summit attempt back in the day. Uh, you know, I, I was young and I was single, and uh, frankly, I was stupid. So it seemed really, really fun at the time. I'm not sure I would do that now that I'm married and, and have kids. Um, but there you have it. Uh, I call myself a transitional mayor not by means of saying that I'm going somewhere soon, but by way of saying my city is going somewhere soon. We are transitioning from being uh, a relatively small city. Some might even argue we're just sort of like a large high school uh, but where we're headed is we've been discovered. People are moving here in large numbers. Our economy is growing and diversifying. Uh, we are becoming a large urban area with all the, the issues and problems that come with being a large urban area. And I know that in 25 years, Portland will be right up there with the ranks of global cities. And so it's my job as the mayor today to lead that transition from being a smaller city uh, with less diversity towards being a large global city with a bigger economy, more people, more diversity, more big city urban type problems, and make sure that as we transition from small to large, we don't lose the things that people love about Portland, the quirkiness, the small scale, uh, our focus on entrepreneurship and maker efforts, uh, our attention to arts and culture and our environmental standards, People want those things maintained. They understand there'll be more people here, and for the most part, people get that, but they don't want to lose the character that makes our city unique. And so my job is to manage this transition, and that's why I call myself a transitional mayor. Ted, we are approaching the end of this podcast, and so I'd like to ask you a final two-part question. Would you please speak to the people of the city of Portland about why you have been motivated ever since that night at Youth Hollow Shelter to dedicate this portion of your life to public service and what you hope at the end of your career in public service, what the legacy will be of all the effort that you've expended on the public's behalf? All right. Very, very good. Um, why was I motivated? Um, to this day, I can't say specifically except to say uh, that it was a calling and it still is a calling. Being mayor is a really, really hard job, and it may even be harder in our city because of the form of government, but I believe I have something to contribute, and I feel it's my responsibility since I was blessed with a lot of advantages to turn those advantages to the benefit of others. And in terms of the legacy, I know uh, that we're building an amazing city, but that's my, not the legacy I want people to remember. As we build the city, I want people to understand and believe that I built a community, and that means more justice, more equity, more inclusive economic prosperity opportunities, 
and having everybody feel that this city is working for them. And that has been Ted Wheeler, Mayor of Portland, Oregon, former Oregon State Treasurer and former Chair of Multoma, uh, sorry, Multnomah uh, County Board of Commissioners, um, who speaks about investing in the long run to protect those who are most vulnerable among us. He makes an economic, a financial argument uh, for diversity and progressive values. He demonstrates that progressive is indeed profitable. By increasing diversity, you're increasing ROI in the long run. By improving equity and justice, you are making the cement of a community that much stronger. And by pursuing this calling for public service and feeling a responsibility to contribute and answering that calling and, 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 and owning up to those responsibilities that he feels he has, not only is Ted able to provide for those most in need, but by doing so, we create a community that even those with much would like to become a part of and to contribute to. Uh, and uh, in that way, Ted is advancing the public interest by building a much more progressive and profitable community in Portland, Oregon. Ted, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate it. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.